So again, I mean, we're on a run here, people. We've got another great episode with Rachel Frank. She's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist. She's an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at University of Colorado. She is one of the 6%, and that is female orthopedic surgeons in the United States. She's exceptionally well-trained. She's incredibly articulate, and she has really carved herself a role into society meetings, into the research that she's doing, in the care of the female athlete. Uh, we talk a lot about the Ruth Jackson Society, which is the Female Orthopedic so Society of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Uh, she's passionate about soccer and injury prevention. It's a great episode. I'm really so impressed by her. I'm convinced she's going to be the future president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. You're going to love this episode. Hashtag follow the fro. This episode of The Ortho Show was brought to you by Thompson Surgical Instruments. Thompson understands the value of exposure and surgery and is dedicated to providing innovative, high-quality, and safe retractors. Thompson's new total joint table-mounted retractor system offers a versatile setup and independent retraction so that surgeons may achieve uncompromised exposure. To learn more and get your free trial today, visit Thompson Surgical Instruments at www.thompsonsurgical.com. That's www.thompsonsurgical.com. Thompson, the go-to retractor for all of your exposure needs. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, this is Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where you know it, we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics, and we absolutely are very excited today to have Dr. Rachel Frank, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist. She's an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Colorado. You can literally not go to a, a society meeting or turn on your computer without seeing her face. It is amazing how prolific she is and only five years into practice. It is a pleasure to have you on the show, Rachel. Well, thanks so much. It's an honor to be here. Love the podcast and love what you're doing. So thanks for having me. No, it's great. I and mean, we've, we've become uh, friends as we work, work together across the various uh, society meetings that are out there. You know, I just, you know, it's so funny. I mean, we'll talk about it. I want to start at the beginning, but, you know, I always joke around. I mean, like in orthopedic years, you know, you're, you're like just got bought mitzvah, you know, you're five years into your clinical practice, but yet it's amazing how busy you are and how uh, integrated you are into industry and education. And so really want to talk about that and how you manage your time and, and how you've developed that would be wonderful. But let's, let's really start at the beginning. You know, I think you're born and bred in Illinois. Is that correct? That's correct. Born and bred in Illinois and was there for 32 years before coming out to Colorado. Yeah, no, I think uh, we're going to, you know, we just had Brian on Brian's episode. Brian Cole's episode was on this last week. So you're like a Brian Cole wannabe. You went to University of Illinois, <laughs> you know, and then you went to Rush and you followed with him. So I love it. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about it. Were you the first doctor in the family? Is it come from a history? What, what's it about? Yeah. So first doctor in my immediate family, there are um, a couple of my, my, one of my dad's cousins um, or two of my dad's cousins are physicians, but no immediate physicians in my family and no one in healthcare. 
Uh, my parents will tell you from whenever I could speak, I wanted to be a doctor. Not sure why, not sure how, but that was, I guess, what I wanted to do growing up and what I wanted to be for Halloween. Other than Karate Kid, one year I wanted to be the Karate Kid. Uh, but I guess, you know, I always wanted to be a doc and and um, I it, it, the rest is history. Uh, but no one in the family. Um, I would tell you, I, I started my training through soccer. I mean, like many sports med docs. I got into this all through being a college athlete and then getting hurt and seeing what it means to get hurt and recover. And that classic story that you hear so many times, I think, especially in female athletes, but also, you know, throughout just orthopedic surgeons in general, I had that personal experience as a patient. And that's what got me um, really to where I am right now. And uh, yeah, everything started back then, back in suburbs of Chicago. You know, it's interesting because, you know, there's, there's the, you know, it's only 6% of orthopedic surgeons are, are females. So the idea for that being a role model for you must not have been easy to identify mentors or role models early on. Uh, but so you, so you went to University of Illinois, you played division one soccer for four years. Or are we going to assume that you had an ACL tear like every other division one female athlete? Uh, it's a good assumption, but I did not knock on wood. I still have two, about two good. thirds of my ACL. Um, but I had a, I had a lateral meniscus tear, which as we also know, is kind of a, a, a kiss of death to the knee if it doesn't go well. And mine, unfortunately, didn't go in the, the good direction of lateral meniscus tears, if they can go in a good direction. But I had like so many others, just a simple uh, meniscus tear, a couple simple scopes after repetitive injuries, and ultimately um, ended up meeting Brian Cole as a patient um, as I was on his operating room table as a meniscus transplant recipient. And fast forward, you know, seven knee surgeries in total uh, later, uh, but haven't had one in over a decade. Uh, my knee still has most of its ACL and a lot of other people's parts, including uh, meniscus and cartilage, and seems to be doing quite well, but really spurred what I like to do, which is help patients get those exact things. What year were you in school when you had your lateral meniscal transplant? Was that in college at that point or when you were in medical school? That was between medical school and college. So I essentially had two meniscectomies during the latter years of college and tried to play through those injuries. And, you know, it's, I was a goalkeeper, so it was demanding, but not crazy demanding on the knee, like a field player might be. Um, and then at the end of my senior year, after having had my second meniscectomy, my knee just went downhill very, very quickly. And so I was lucky enough to get into Brian Cole's practice and meet him. And fortunately I was a candidate for a transplant and ended up having that three weeks before starting my first year of med school at Northwestern. So we share a similar story because I love it. So I twisted my knee while at Tufts playing uh, lacrosse and had an osteochondral loose body. Uh, back in the day, they didn't even really do MRIs back then. This was like in the mid eighties or something like that. And J.R. Richmond scoped my knee. And so it came down probably to a similar story as you. You're sitting down in your orthopedic residency interview and they say, you know, why do you want to come here? Well, because Dr. Cole did my lateral meniscal transplant. And I'm like, because Dr. Richmond scoped my knee. So that's really hundred percent. That's a great story. I love that. So, so you spend your four years at University of Illinois, you get your lateral meniscal transplant, you know, you're affected by this, but the light's on. It's like, now it's orthopedics. Not only am I going to be a doctor, but like sports medicine is the coolest. We are the coolest in medicine. There's no question about that. No doubt assuming, about it. Right. No doubt about it. So then you decide to go to Northwestern School of Medicine. And I'm sure at that point it was all on all speed, full speed ahead, orthopedics, research. How am I going to get there? What am I going to do? Yeah. So, you know, when I got to Northwestern and I, I like to think they have a bell curve for a reason, I certainly wasn't that Northwestern caliber candidate. I mean, I was a student athlete and while I got good grades, average test scores and no research because all I did was play soccer, but somehow got into med school and um, really loved the Northwestern culture and was very thankful to get in there. 
And then um, during my first year of med school, I really thought I wanted to do ortho just for the reasons you mentioned. You're already part of it. You, you know, you've experienced it on the patient side. It seems pretty cool. And um, I was, uh, you know, just doing my normal M1 stuff. And we got an email about a sports medicine research fellowship at Rush. And I said, oh, I know Rush. I had surgery there. This seems cool. I don't know anything about research at this point because of no medicine influences in my family, I didn't even really understand the residency process or what that meant in terms of getting in. We hadn't taken step one yet because I was just an M1, no idea. So I went over and interviewed for this job and saw one of my mentors at that point, now friend, Sanjeev Bhatia, who's a sports medicine surgeon, a couple of years ahead of me at Northwestern, doing ACL surgery on rabbits. And I said, oh, this is research. I thought research was pipetting in a lab. You know, I get to do surgery on animals and they, they get to see them get better. Uh, little did I know that you end up sacrificing the animals down the road, but I didn't know that part at that time. And so I said, this seems great. So I applied for that. And that was under Nick Verma's leadership and his partners over at Rush. And, you know, I'm not sure why, maybe they had no other candidates that year, but they selected me and I had no experience whatsoever. Didn't know what writing a paper was, didn't know what a publication was. Again, just a, a dumb jock trying to do something that I love doing. And spent a year, um, Shane No was a clinical fellow at that time and really taught me how to do research and do it, you know, the right way uh, under Nick's leadership and with Dr. Cole and Dr. Romeo, Dr. Bach, Dr. Bush-Joseph, you know, all the different attendings there. They really took me under their wing and I worked my butt off the way I had done in soccer and everything else before. And it was, I mean, I, I tell people that was the catalyst. That was, this is what I'm going to do. This is who I want to be. And this is how I want to do it. And so I did research for that year. I got back to um, Northwestern for M2 year. I worked my butt off to try to get a good score on step one so that residency would be an option. Fortunately, that worked out. And I was lucky enough to match at Rush for residency. Which is fantastic. I mean, you've already developed this amazing relationship with them so early on. And I think that's really important for our listeners that are out there, medical students or, or residents or whatnot. Look, these people may be larger than life, you know, but at the end of the day, they're just people and, and they want to have people around them be successful and literally just have to go up and say, hi, <laughs> you know, that might be totally. just enough to start a conversation and tell them you're interested. And then people will help you, especially the great mentors that are there that they want to take you under the wing. They want you to have a seat at the table to be able to be successful. So then, so then like you already know everybody now you're at rush, you're doing your residency with an, an amazing group across I don't know, what are there, 80 orthopedic surgeons now? There's a ton there. And there, yeah. um, you know, when I was there, it was mostly in Chicago, a little bit in Oak Park, um, a little bit expanding some of the suburbs. Now they've expanded uh, incredibly throughout the Illinois and Indiana. Um, but I, you know, those guys, um, I, those guys and, and Monica Kogan, I'd say the, the one lone female um, who was one of my mentors there, those surgeons really took me in and helped me become better at everything I was doing. You know, you, you, I came in as a known commodity from the research year, but that meant I had to work even harder. I had to make sure that I knew and everyone knew I didn't get in just because they had known me or just because I published papers with them, but because I worked hard, was good at what I did, and they could see a future in me. And I think ortho is really what you put in is what you get out. And so if you work your butt off, you're going to get rewarded for that for the most part. And I feel very fortunate because my mentors, um, they, they helped me. They helped me tremendously. You know, I, I worked for them and, and in turn, they supported me to, to get on the podium, to get out to conferences, to get my name known to some of the companies. Um, and um, they also taught me what it means to be a doctor, to be a team physician and to be a technically excellent surgeon. So I felt like we, 
you know, we had a lot of give and take throughout my residency um, in terms of they they gave and um, I gave and they took and I took and we all kind of became a sponge with each other. You know, we absorbed a lot from each other and I'm just so grateful to them. Also incredibly grateful to my residency classmates. You know, I had four guys and me and those are four of um, who I would consider great friends and brothers, you know, and we got each other through the early years in residency when it's so difficult. And then we got each other through matching and we've stayed, you know, friends um, throughout. And it's hard to believe it's been a lot of years since residency's passed. Um, but I, I think uh, I, I would, I don't know that I'd repeat residency. I don't know anyone who'd want to repeat residency, but I feel lucky to have been where I was when I was there with the guys that I was with. Yeah, no, the, the, the esprit de corps, right? You're in the troop, you're in the trenches together and you're, you're pulling together and doing amazing stuff. And it's a lot of hard work. And, and so, but then you, you fit the perfect mold for the fellowship. I mean, I take a look at, you know, the amazing job that that everyone has done there, Jorge and Nick and, and Brian Cole and the fellows that they put together. I mean, you guys are, I shouldn't say the word guys, right? I'm not supposed to say that, but no, but as a, as a rule, you're packaged and, and finished products by the time you're done. And when you get out of your fellowship, you are literally hitting the ground running and making a difference in orthopedics from day one. And I really liked the way you summed it up, you know, they taught me to be a surgeon, a team physician and how to care for patients and research. All of those things come together. I mean, the rush fellows are just kick-ass. I mean, you know, I mean, who was in your class? Call out your class. Let's hear. Well, so we had Nick Brown, who's an arthroplasty surgeon in Chicago, Andy Riff, sports medicine surgeon in Chicago, started in Indiana, Mike Hellman, an arthroplasty surgeon in Kansas City, and Brian Haugam, who is an arthroplasty surgeon up in Alaska. Um, those are the guys in my residency class. And then obviously I have my, my teammates from my fellowship class who are superstars around the country doing sports medicine. And yeah, I, I would agree that fellowship, I think residency teaches you all the things I mentioned and then fellowship for sports there is kind of the, the icing on top. And what they teach you there is not just how to be a phenomenal technician in the operating room, a great indicator of deciding when to do and not to do surgery, which is you know more important. It's more important to decide when not to do surgery, particularly in sports but also how to run a practice, how to run a business, how to be efficient with your team. Um, and those are things you don't learn in residency very easily. And we all know the first couple of years in practice are very difficult for a variety of reasons. But one is because you're doing it all on your own for the first time ever. And at Rush, they really teach you the business side of orthopedics. And I'm so grateful for that because even though I'm in an academic environment now, it's, it is very business heavy and it's very productivity and efficient focused. And so my background at Rush really prepared me well for that. Yeah, the privademic model at Rush, I think, is really wonderful. I mean, if you take a look at a lot of other major academic centers, you know, there's no industry involvement. There's no ability to have innovation, intellectual property. But in this situation, you know, you're backed by an amazing university. You're allowed to be, you know, in touch with industry, which helps to, you know, stimulate new ideas and innovation. So I completely agree. And, and I think that the business side of things are important, too. And you know, and then you did another really cool thing before we get into a couple of the, the nuts and bolts of what you do in practice. You did a traveling fellowship, which had to have been phenomenal. I'm assuming, was it six months or three months or? So that was a three month traveling fellowship. And yeah. that was amazing. Um, one, you know, one advantage to staying in the same place for fellowship as you did residency is you start a little bit ahead because you know the techniques, you know the basics. But one of the disadvantages, and it's a big disadvantage, is you don't learn anything new. And so you're you're advancing your skill set, but you're not necessarily adding tools to your toolbox because hopefully if you've had a good residency experience, you put in a lot of tools. So 
that being said, the volume at Rush is so high and they attend, there's so many different sports attendings. I felt like I still had so much to learn. And that was one of the reasons I stayed for fellowship. But I wanted to add, I wanted to augment and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just doing things the Rush way, even though it's a great way, but that I learned other ways to do things. And so I was very lucky that my future employer, the University of Colorado, allowed me to take three months before starting practice to go see other surgeons do what they do best and bring pieces of those back to my practice. And so I spent a couple of weeks up in London, Ontario with Al Getgood, learning more about osteotomies, which are a major part of my practice now, and a lot of which I've learned from him, uh, multi-ligament knee reconstructions, even with osteotomies, and then um, went over to Europe and had, I would say, equal parts education and equal parts fun and spent some times with phenomenal surgeons. Joe Walsh, I got to scrub with him. Um, you know, he said, what a gift, what a, a treat to be able to scrub with one of the most elegant, amazing shoulder surgeons that we've all, you know, we've all learned from. If you do shoulder surgery, you know his work, but to scrub with him and watch him do it, you know, I, I felt we, we accomplished a shoulder arthroplasty in 30, 35 minutes. There was no blood in the field and yet we never felt rushed. It was just the most elegant, almost like watching a musician at work um, or an artist at work. And then got to spend time with um, Giovanni Di Giacomo in Italy, with um, with uh, Elisabetta Cohn in Italy, with Andreas Imhoff in Germany. Um, also happened to be Oktoberfest at that time when I was in Germany. The timing just happened to work out quite well. Um, so just, you know, and, and countless other superstars around Europe. And I, I'm so grateful. Those are, you know, people that now when I go to meetings, I get to say hi to them and we talk as friends. And while I still look at look up to them as as you know, mentors and ortho gods, they're friends and we can talk and we know about each other's families and we ask them what they've done that day and whatnot. So it's um, for me that I encourage all of our residents and fellows go out and go somewhere, go see someone. And I hope to be able to do that throughout my career, going for a few days or a week at a time to go see a surgeon who's excellent in an area that I want to become more excellent in. Even as I continue to develop expertise in what I'm doing, we can always get better. And I certainly can always get better so that, um, that three months, I, I mean, I would do that again in a heartbeat and the, the people I met, the places I went and what I brought to my practice, you know, game changing. Yeah, certainly a, a, a lifetime uh, memory that you'll never forget for sure. And again, developing these relationships and I'm sure just like Seth Sherman, you got your passport ready to rock and roll and get called to the next meeting back to Europe where you can present again for sure. Another rush, uh, another rush a protege who we've had on. He'll be on in a couple of weeks as well. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the stuff that you're passionate about and, and you've spent a lot of time. Now, I, I also just found out that Brian Cole was uh, named a, a full professor of biochemistry at Rush. So I'm, I'm assuming that you're working on a biochemistry professorship at one point or another in your career. Uh, you never know. I, I don't think I have the <laughs> biochemistry background that he does, um, but uh, kudos to him. I mean, what an accomplishment given he's one of the, the busiest people I've ever met and I think will ever meet. The fact that he's adding that to his his, you know, cap rate there. Um, kudos to him and, and well-deserved, uh, but yeah, he's, he's not, he's not making in the pipeline us, for me yet. He's making us orthopedic surgeons look bad, a professor yeah. of uh, biochemistry. So we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor, Trackable Med. This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by Trackable Med. You work like crazy, but you make less every year. You feel busy, but it's not with the procedures you want. The problem is you rely on referrals, which are out of your control. Maybe you've tried advertising, maybe a new website, but there are always questions. Is it working? Am I wasting money? How can you get more of the patients you want on purpose? Trackable Med. Trackable Med was born out of a frustration with an advertising industry riddled with a lack of accountability to actual outcomes. 
With Trackable Med, it's all about the results defined as something you can deposit into a bank account. Results are achieved through an approach rooted in neuroscience, advertising, web design, and even appointment setting patient engagement solutions. Everything is designed with purpose towards your goal and all with no contracts. Find out if accelerating patient demand for your practice with Trackable Med is a good fit for you. Visit trackablemed.com and click on free consultation. All right, so let's let's talk orthobiologics. I know you're really passionate about that. Now we're getting. Remember, my mother Judy is listening, so we don't go too deep here. We like to be sort of superficial, but let you know. Let's just you know. Let's just. What do you think? I mean, we all know that orthobiologics. If you're really into it, it, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's working and you can make a difference in people's lives. Maybe you're not regenerating things. That's why orthobiologics is better than regenerative medicine. But you can help with pain and inflammation and, and really change what how people feel. But again, I think, you know, I think it's hard pressed for us to say that at one point or another, it's going to be paid by commercial payers. But I mean, I know you're passionate about orthobiologics. Give us a 36,000 foot synopsis of where you think we're going right now. Yeah, I, I think you bring up great points and the field is exciting. That's number one. This is an exciting field, not just in ortho, but in medicine in general, the ability of minimally invasive techniques and technologies to help improve function and pain. That's, that's biologics in, the, in a summary sentence. I think when we think about orthobiologics, we need to think about disease modification and clinical modification. So patients just want to feel better. That at the end of the day, no matter what we do, whether it's an ACL tear or hip arthritis or degenerative spine disease, patients just want to feel better. They want to do what they're currently doing with less pain, more function. Or if they get injured, they want to get back to what they were doing before the injury. And so biologics offers an opportunity to help with that in a minimally invasive fashion. What we as clinicians really need to keep in mind is exactly what you said. We're not necessarily at the point where we're modifying disease, regenerating tissue, and making an 80-year-old joint 20 again. But we might be able to reduce the inflammation improve the pain and therefore improve the function to where you can do things you couldn't do before because of whatever condition you're dealing with. And I think we see this time and time again with arthritis, you know, particularly mild to moderate NEOA, there's some pretty good evidence for certain orthobiologics to be effective. And will you have to repeat treatments every six months or every year? Sure. But if you do, and you can keep your function at a very acceptable level with minimal pain, who wouldn't want that? Especially if you can avoid a surgery, avoid narcotics, which I know you're very passionate about, and and we all should be passionate about that. What if you can do things to keep you functional with less pain with a minimally invasive approach? I think the whole commercial payer side of this is an interesting topic and probably too much for what we have time for to talk about today, but certainly something that we should be talking about whenever we talk about biologics because the out-of-pocket cost is a variable that may impact and probably does impact outcomes, sometimes good, sometimes bad. If a patient truly is a candidate for it, but they can't afford it, that's a bad aspect to the cost. If a patient may never have been helped by it, but's paying for it, they're going to want to see an effect no matter what. So there's a potential placebo effect. So there's a lot of different variables and nuances. I think in summary, this is a field that's here to stay and only evolving. It's a billion-dollar industry. But beyond the money, it really does help patients when applied in the right way. What we have to do as scientists, physicians, clinicians, industry, 
and everyone in between is we have to figure out what is that right way. Who is that best patient for a given orthobiologic application? And that's where talking about it out loud at meetings, not being afraid to call each other out on why we're doing what we're doing and what we're charging and what our outcomes are. Are we collecting data? Are we measuring the number of platelets, for example, in PRP? And are we reporting on it so that we can learn from each other, figure out what works, and then get rid of what doesn't work? But I'm excited about this field. You know, I think um, I think there are some real potential benefits, both from a non-surgical and a surgical application side. And I think it's up to us to figure out what those benefits are. Yeah, I agree. It's not going away. And anybody that thinks that it uh, hocus pocus at this point is a dinosaur. You know, there, there's enough evidence at this point to suggest that it's great. I think we need to be transparent. I think we need to be honest. Uh, I think that we need to market correctly. You know, Scott Bruder is a dear friend, and we always like to listen to him who provides his counsel, as well as Andrew Idleman, as well as an attorney, a uh, regulatory attorney. So make sure you're careful about what you're saying. And I think that that can all be good. So another, I think another important area that I think you focus on in particular is the care of the female athlete. And so obviously, you know, there are differences and, and the way in which, you know, the nuances of nutrition and all the things that go into it treatment of a female athlete, how that's different. Just spend a couple of minutes telling us, you know, where you are there and, and what you recommend and, and, and what we're seeing. Well, thank you for bringing that up because not a lot of people want to talk about the female athlete, especially sports med docs, because I think a lot of us tend to think an athlete is an athlete is an athlete. And we're going to fix an ACL the same way, whether they're male, female, old or young, we're going to do a rotator cuff the same way and instability the same way, et cetera. So th thank you for bringing that up. The female athlete, you know, I'm a female athlete, so it's near and dear to me from a personal perspective. But just from a humanistic perspective, there are inherent differences in biologic males and females and how we treat their tissues and address their injuries and how we address their recoveries from injury. This is seen from things such as concussion. Males and females handle concussions differently and their reaction to head injuries, their reaction to sustaining an injury and getting back to sport very different. And if you don't know that you're going to treat every patient the same, and you're going to have some very poor outcomes and very devastated and disappointed patients when they experience those poor outcomes. So everything from non-surgical sports medicine conditions, such as concussions to understanding, of course, ACL tears, for example, still six to seven times more prominent in the female athlete compared to the male athlete. We've known this for four decades, but the numbers haven't changed right? We've known this for four decades, but we're still six to seven more times more likely to injure our knee. How is that? We've got very smart people in orthopedics, yet we still haven't figured out how to prevent these injuries from happening. So still an area that's prime for additional research and studies and exploration. And then even little things such as understanding shoulder instability, or and I'm not a hip surgeon, but hip instability, different nuances in the male and female athlete where we need to pay attention surgically when we're repairing such tissue or reconstructing tissue, we may need to do it a little bit differently in the male versus female athlete to get them an optimal outcome. We need to pay attention to their sport. A softball pitcher is not the same, for example, as a baseball pitcher. That windmill pitch is a very different mechanism than the overhead pitch. But if we're treating uh, you know, an anterior superior labral problem in an overhead athlete the same, we're going to miss the ball depending on how we're treating them, if they're male versus female, and depending on what sport they play. Um, I do want to, you know, throw some kudos out to uh, Mary Mulcahy and Liz Matskin, who helped me put together a book um, a year or so ago called The Female Athlete. We're probably the only three that have read it, but it was a passion project for us. And um, it really put into a single comprehensive text, 
a lot of these nuances that that we're discussing here. And again, it's it's I think it's important not just for female surgeons, but for male surgeons and everyone in between to pay attention to. We have to treat the patient in front of us, not the MRI scan, not the report, not the sport. We've got to treat the person in front of us. And um, and and being you know biologically male versus biologically female makes some inherent differences with respect to the tissues, and we have to be cognizant of that. We have to be respectful of that, and we have to treat patients the right way. Well, I'm really happy I asked that question because it's not something that we've actually entertained on the Ortho Show to date. And so you're very passionate about it, thrilled that you were able to bring it up. We're going to have Liz on the show. Her husband, Eric Smith, has been on, so we've got to get her on as well uh, for sure. But, you know, thank you so much for really, you know, for sharing that really important information. While we're there, let's stick around, you know, in, in the female athlete and the female orthopedic surgeon. You're a member of a lot of different societies. Let's throw out a shout out to the Ruth Jackson Society, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, Ruth Jackson and um, so many amazing, you know, it's funny, six, we're, we're 6% in orthopedics, but I can tell you so many amazing females in orthopedics, not just in sports medicine. And that's because I think, you know, I think when by the time you get to this field, you're a superstar and you you really excel. And so I'm so grateful for um, the women in Ruth Jackson, the women not in Ruth Jackson, but are still supporters of additional women in ortho and the the men that support women, you know, the, the allies that, that really bring us along um, and treat us as equals and don't just bring us to the table because we happen to be women, but, but they bring us there because we happen to be good at what we do and also happen to be women. So Ruth Jackson's great. I actually got involved in that society when I was a medical student. They offer programs and scholarships for med students to attend their annual meeting and get a taste of the AAOS annual meeting while you're there. And what a great opportunity for a medical student, even before they've become a resident, to get exposed to actual women doing orthopedic surgery, presenting at the podium in a superstar, you know, limelight or or spotlight. So it's, um, it's great for, it was great for me to have been exposed to Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society early as a medical student. The Ruth Jackson Society, along with Perry Outreach Society, also sponsors workshops for high school and um, collegiate and medical student uh, uh, students. I said collegiate like athletes, but co- college students and medical students to go and get their hands dirty with orthopedic instruments and tools and suturing and, and power drivers and whatnot. And um, it's an amazing program and group of programs that really exposes people who may not have been exposed through regular life channels, maybe to doctors in the family, or maybe even told you're a woman, you can't do orthopedics, you're not strong enough to show that you are strong enough and you certainly can do this if you want to do this. So, um, you know, those are just a few things about Ruth Jackson, but I think for me, it's been great. They gave me early exposure to not necessarily the field of ortho because I was already decently exposed to that, but to women in the field and to female mentors. And, um, you know, while I'm very grateful for my male mentors, it is amazing to see women doing things at the highest level. It's amazing to see them up at the podium. It makes me feel like I can do that too. Um, some incredible, you know, there's so many amazing female orthopedic surgeons, but looking at someone like Joe Hannafin, who first female president of AOSSM, it, to me, she's just Dr. Hannafin. She's amazing. The fact that she's a woman and was able to do this in a time maybe when it wasn't so female friendly to become a leader in a society like this is inspiring for someone like me, whether or not that's an aspiration of mine, it's inspiring for me to see someone do that. And someone as, you know, respected and talented and amazing as, as Dr. Hannafin, it's great to see that. So um, that's a long winded answer to your question about Ruth Jackson, but I would just tell you, I'm grateful for uh, being a part of orthopedics as a woman and seeing so many female orthopedic surgeons do things at the highest level. And I think societies like Ruth Jackson really help support that. 
Well, we're thrilled that we gave you the opportunity to share. And that's the first time we've done that on the show as well. So we thank you very much. So, you know, let's talk a little bit something fun. I saw you running across the soccer pitch down in Costa Rica. Uh, that must have been terrific as a as a former Division One collegiate athlete, being able to help care for the U-20 American uh, women's uh, soccer team. That must have been an amazing time. Well, that was great. And that's a very generous use of the word run. I would say I was more <laughs> of a jog, uh, which is the fastest I go these days. Um, so I, I was in Costa Rica last week with the under 20 women's national team for U.S. soccer as part of the World Cup. Um, so, you know, as any kid growing up, you want to play in a World Cup. If you like soccer, that's a dream of yours. Athletically, never talented enough to do that. Had the heart, didn't have the skills. So college soccer was as good as it got for me. And I'm grateful for, for that experience for sure. Uh, but since uh, becoming an orthopedic surgeon, becoming an attending, I've been in touch and stayed connected with U.S. soccer and a few years ago was with the U23s in Spain and this year had the opportunity to go to a World Cup with the U20s and I I just have to tell you there is no better experience it's all you know it's a volunteer experience you take time off your practice but to put on the red white and blue represent your country as corny as this sounds it is a dream come true and whether it's at the senior level with the senior national team or they go you know, 15 or even younger, it doesn't matter. These are all athletes who are number one, really good at what they do. Number two, all they want to do is play and get to the next level. And they're, these are the athletes that we all dream of taking care of, right? They're just passionate for the right reasons about playing the sport. There's, there's not really the financial or agent concerns just yet. They're, they're still in that prime zone of just before or in collegiate athlete territory. And some of them are even professional, even at, at young ages of 16, 17, 18. And you're there alongside them. And um, the, the coaches are phenomenal. And the U.S. ended up having a rough run there, but amazing coaching staff and amazing medical staff and behind the scenes technical staff. And I feel, again, not to be corny, but just so grateful and honored to be part of Team USA. There, there's for me as a sports med doc, there is just literally nothing better, and I can't wait to do it again and and hopefully help contribute to the care, um, you know, of another team. I just wish you were more passionate about things. I mean, it's really <laughs> it's really boring talking to you. You know, you're really not into any of this stuff. But no, it's awesome, Rachel. Look, so as we're about ready to close, we always like to give some advice to our young listeners. Let's talk to our young female listeners that are out there that say, you know, let's push that six percent up to fifty percent. How are they going to get there? What advice? would you provide at this point for a young woman who's thinking about orthopedics? Well, I would say for a young woman or, you know, a young man or anyone in between, I would say, if you want to do this, you can do this. You don't have to have a family member who's been in ortho. You don't have to be kind of inbred into the, the orthopedic culture. It can be brand new. It was brand new for me. I knew nothing about it. Now I, it's all I do. I'm a little bit for better, or for worse, a little bit of a workaholic when it comes to ortho, but I love it. I would do nothing else. And so I would say, number one, it's common sense, but if you want to do it, just go do it. You got to work hard. It's not easy, uh, but it's totally worth it. I would say for sure, get involved. So that's a very kind of cliche and general statement, but reach out to mentors for anyone listening. You can reach out to me anytime. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you would say the same thing, Scott, reach out to you. We're, we're here. We want people to get into the field who want to be in this, in the field. So especially for young females, I'm here for you, but young males too, reach out anytime I'm here. Um, and I would say, go and shadow, go see and make sure it's something you really want to do. Go to a meeting. There's always opportunities for high school students, college students, medical students, et cetera. So go and get involved. And I would say the last thing um, is uh, enjoy it. 
I mean, life is short. We've seen world changes with this pandemic. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow. So if you if you want to do it, do it and enjoy it. There is literally nothing better than being an orthopedic surgeon. Well, there, there's no great surprise why you're on every single podium at every meeting because you're incredibly articulate. You're incredibly passionate. You're so early on in your career. I'm just so impressed by all the things that you're doing. We greatly appreciate all of the energy that put into education, to the treatment of the female athlete, to orthobiologics, to literature, to book writing. You're amazing. And it's really been a pleasure having you on the show, Rich. Well, thanks so much. I, again, I appreciate it. I, I love what you do and um, please keep doing it because it's not only entertaining, but I get to meet new people. I feel like every time you put out you know, a new episode, I love your your social media posts. And, um, and, and this is great. This is part of the other side of what we do. It's the entertainment side. It's the fun side. It makes, um, it makes the people that I look up to seem real because they are real, but it gives us, it gives us an opportunity to peek into their lives a little bit. And so thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be on here. Well, to the future president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, Rachel Frank, it's been a pleasure having you on. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the ortho show till next time.